Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It is a great privilege I have today to welcome Rabbi Kenneth Brander. Rabbi Brander is the president and Rosh Hashiva of Or Torah Stone in Israel. He is also the former vice president at Yeshiva University, and he was the founding rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue in Boca Raton, Florida, starting when there was just 60 families. And when he left there to move to YU in 2005, it had already grown to 600 families, one of the fastest growing shuls in the nation. Uh, today, Rabbi Brander is joining me from his home in Yerushalayim, which is in the mid midst of what we call a brownout or a blackout. And I appreciate the fact that he has been able to figure out how to get all the technology to work and to rely on a flashlight as well, as well to make this conversation happen. And I also wanna mention that for those who want, this very same broadcast will be available as an Apple podcast a little later today. So if you wanna to listen to it and not just watch it, it is entirely available to you. Rabbi Brander, thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Rabbi Matanki. It's always a privilege. Uh to spend a few minutes with one of the bright lights of the Jewish community. Well, you're only saying that because we have electricity. <laughs> you know, Jerusalem is always a city of light, even uh, when there's a little bit of a brownout, but uh, yeah. it's really a privilege to always spend time with you, Reverend. Well, thank, you, thank you very much. I, you know, there are so many things that you have accomplished in your career, not the least of which your most recent accomplishments in Israel, overseeing 30 institutions of Oratora Stone, thousands of students, and tens of thousands of people that you've had an impact upon. But if it's okay, I want to go back a little bit to your days when you were with Rav Soloveitchik. You were one of the lucky few who was able to be a misharet, an assistant for Rav Soloveitchik. Um, what, what was that like? You know, uh, first of all, I, I owe a, a tremendous amount of debt of gratitude to Rabbi uh, Yosef Blau, the Mashkiach Ruchani of, of YU, uh, because when the family asked me to do it, initially I said no, because I was so intimidated. Um, <laughs> and he came over to me in the base medrash and basically, I mean, he didn't say it, like this, but he basically said, what are you crazy? Like, <laughs> why would you turn that down? And I explained to him how intimidating he was. He said, well, why don't you think about it? Let's, why don't you reconsider? Which Baruch Hashem, I did. Um, and, you know, the, uh, when, when I was, had the privilege of spending some time with Rabbi Soloveitchik um, with uh, some wonderful others, um, you know, I, I would sleep in the apartment when he was there. There was a one bedroom apartment in the YU Morgenstern dorm two beds in a one bedroom apartment. So, you know, I think the first few nights that I was there and sleeping in the same bedroom as Rabbi Soloveitchik, I went to sleep uh, in the same manner that I'm and on this broadcast in a suit and tie and then moved eventually to sweats. But I think for me, the most uh, unbelievable experience uh, in, in a general uh, perspective is the fact that you saw the, the greatness of Rabbi Soloveitchik was not just obvious for everybody, his, his brilliance, but it was also his menschlichkeit and his personality, his caringness, his concern for people. The fact that as he got older, we had to space out the uh, private appointments because often they dealt with really trials and tribulations and they personally affected him. Um, and, and you could see that on him. He was pained. Um, 
when he dealt with a difficult situation or had to deal with it, it affected the way or if he could sleep. And seeing such a great human being, such a great Torah scholar, also be concerned about the human condition, uh, that that synergy was just amazing to watch and, uh, and amazing just to witness. I think that if I had to summarize it, I think it was the fact that he was, first of all, he may have been the lonely man of faith from a philosophical perspective, that he was never lonely from a perspective of that people were always visiting him. And he was always concerned with others, which uh, I think that really reminded us of what our responsibility as leaders are. And that is not just to come up with unbelievable sermons, but more importantly, to be concerned in the quiet times for the needs of people. Is there a favorite story from that time? Um, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I just met with Rev Schechter on Friday at, uh, at YU's branch. Um, we spent like 45 minutes together talking about Aguna issues because one of our departments and one of our institutions is Yad Isha that deals with around 600 cases internationally and 80 cases of, uh, with the rabbinical courts. And I was asking Rev Schechter for some guidance of how far can I go on some of these issues. So he actually reminded me again that he thinks that I should find some time to write, write up the stories and write up the experiences with Rabbi Soloveitchik. And I explained to him, and right now it's a little hard, but uh, I would try to uh, honor that request somehow. You know, there, there, are, many, there are many unique stories. Um, I think the one that um, I, I'm not, I don't sure if I'm most fond of any one of them, but the one that really uh, maybe even speaks to an issue that should be so important to us. When Rav Moshe Feinstein passed away, it was Purim time, Tinus Esther, if my memory serves me correctly, around Tinus Esther. And Rav Moshe and, Re and the Rav were very close. They were relatives, but they were also very close. They didn't see eye to eye on every philosophical issue or halachic issue, but they were very close. And the family asked us not to tell Rabbi Salvechik of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's Petira, which we didn't. So, which meant that he didn't get the newspaper and the radio and the apartment wasn't fully functional. So that we basically created this, you know, uh, cloud of um, not misinformation, but just not information. Um, and I got a I was learning then in the Colo of YU on the third floor, then it was on the third floor of uh, First Hall. And a, uh, there's a phone call from, Rabbi, from the apartment and Rabbi Soloveitchik asked that I take him to the airport right before Pesach. Um, and I'm driving Rabbi Soloveitchik to the airport because he requested, normally I was in Colo Seder. Um, and I'm driving him, he took the Eastern Airlines shuttle uh, at LaGuardia and he had a credit card that basically would get swiped when he was on the plane that spelled out Joe Solo. Um, and uh, Salafajic, I think, was too long for the credit card. So the bottom line is, as we're driving on the Grand Central Parkway, I can still, I still know where this was. He turns to me and says, how can you tell me that Rev. Moshe Feinstein passed away? So I'm holding the, trying to hold the steering wheel as he's asking me this question. Um, and I finally um, explained to him that the family, I mentioned which children in the family asked us not to tell him. Um, 
And then when he went on the plane, called them uh, in Boston to let them know what had happened. But as we're driving to the airport, I, I turned to Rabbi Soloveitchik and I, and I said to him, I don't understand, Rebbe. How did, how did you find out? Like, the radio wasn't working. You didn't get the New York Times that you got every single day. Like, we made sure that no one said anything. Because you don't understand, it's before Pesach. Every Chag, we call each other. It was, it was Rav Moshe's turn to call me. There's only one reason why he didn't call me to wish me a good yantif. That was the relationship that Gedolim had with each other. Um, it was the relationship that Rev that the Rav had with uh, Rav Rudiman, uh, Zatzal from Neir Yisrael. It was the relationship, obviously, that he had with his brother. It was the relationship that he had with many Gedolim. Um, it didn't mean that they walked that they always agreed on every halachic issue, but they there was a love and respect and a hadras panim for each other. And I often think that we're missing that. Um, and therefore that story resonates with me uh, because we're, I'm searching for that. Um, and, and, and that story I think really represents that. I'm gonna jump way ahead to today if it's all right, even though I have to make mention of the fact that when you were vice president at YU, uh, your work with the Center for the Jewish Future as the Mitzner Dean really transformed YU and also communities like Chicago because of your efforts. We have a YU Kolo in Chicago. And because of your efforts, YU had went beyond the boundaries of, of Washington Heights. You really created something very, very special. And now you've taken it to Israel. And I want to give enough time to really understand what's going on in Ortora Stone. You were tapped by Rabbi Riskin, who founded Ortora Stone to be his successor. When you came into Israel, it's a very, obviously, it's a, a tremendous schut to make aliyah, but it was a very different role. You walked into it in a very different country and in a very different um, culture. What were your, what were and what are your primary focus today? What, what do you want to, where do you want to make this different well, uh, thank you. First of all, I, I'm still in Ola Chadash, and it's, and albeit I'm starting, um, I think I've just finished my third year. Um, I still very much a newbie here because I just like everything is new. Um, the only thing I've done a lot of times in Israel since I got here is vote. You know, I've, <laughs> I've voted like six times already or something like that between the multiple times for the Jerusalem mayor and obviously for the prime minister, I voted multiple times. But uh, other than that, I'm, I'm really a newbie and I'm still finding my way, especially with the Israeli uh, leadership of Ortura Stone, the board, who are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, but, you know, again, I'm an American who made Aliyah You know, my Hebrew is pretty decent and stuff like that. And things are wonderful and they're amazing. But I'm, uh, in many ways, um, I'm, as, as I say many times, a nayim chadashot. Um, and so therefore I have a new set of eyes and I look at things differently. So I, th I have a few animamims for my engagement with Ortura Stone. Uh, but first is education. We have 5,000 students and you as a premier educator on the international Jewish stage knows that uh, although I can't, deal with every single student. Um, and we have multiple, we have six high schools and multiple post high schools. 
you know, my goal is to make sure that those schools have what they need in order to service uh, the students to the best of their ability. And they do an amazing job of creating multiple educational systems uh, within Israel. Israel has its own structures. It's not as free uh, as, um, you know, as you, if you're running a private school in America, but it costs less because the government supports a lot of it. So we just finished a $12 million campus for one of our high schools, um, but the government paid for a significant amount of that um, and pays a significant amount of the educational bill for every citizen in the state of Israel. But we have the opportunities to do amazing things. So we do, we have school, all of our schools have both what we would call special ed classes and regular classes, but we try to mainstream side stream and um, all different types of things. Um, so, that, so that's like one on imamim for me. And that is making sure that the education is as strong as it can be. And the other thing is we have post high school programs. Um, we have, uh, you know, a thousand students in our post high school programs, whether it's the Madrash at Lindenbaum branches, the three branches, whether it's two yeshivot has there, whether it's our Kololim, our advanced learning programs for women. Also, those have to be first rate. As you and I speak, we have 550 students in the IDF, uh, making sure that they're, they're safe to the best of our ability, but more importantly, making sure they're taken care of, that we take care of them. We visit the women in the IDF every other week and give them shiurim. We have WhatsApp groups where they can answer questions, both the men and the women. Um, and I've had to deal with the first time, the tragedies of losing students uh, to terrorist attacks, Rahman al-Islan. And, um, and, um, and, 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 you know, that, that's not an easy thing even to say, let alone to, to experience. Um, so that's, that's one Ani Mamim. The other Ani Mamim is Rabbi Matenki, and that is Israel is an amazing, amazing place. There's a lot of spirituality here. That doesn't mean everyone's religious, but there's a lot of spirituality. So just to give you an example, um, you know, like in many places, especially in Israel, there are people who have minyanim or had minyanim on the street. So on our block on Katamon, Kofshe Katamon, there's a wonderful family, the Katz family, that have a Shabbos minyan. Now, during the heart of COVID, you would sometimes have cabs go by. There, there was more than one, one time where a cab was going by while the Sefer Torah was being taken out of the Aron on the street. And the cab would, cabbie would literally roll down his window and air kiss the Torah as he's driving by on Shabbos. Or the guy who's jogging, who sees Birkat Kohanim and he starts jogging in place to the Chapa Bracha. Um, there's, there's, there's something spiritual. There's something amazing. Even the people who say they're not religious are putting on tefillin every single morning. Um, they don't consider themselves that tea, but they're, you know, that works for me. And I think it's about finding ways to help people find their spiritual wings. So we have programs where we work with the Jewish community centers all over Israel. We interact with around 400,000 Israelis. We're not there yet of creating what I would consider the most effective programs, but we're working on it. 
So we'll have 40,000 people for Megillah readings. So we're preparing for that. And uh, so on the one hand, it's recognizing the fact that if you went to the beaches of Tel Aviv on Shabbos and you held a Kiddush, people would come by for Kiddush. They would find something to put on their head to make Kiddush. Um, they would sing a Zemer and they would go back into the water. But there is a spirituality that resonates throughout Israel. That's and, the first thing. And, and add just one yeah, other thing. Right. And then just, um, uh, and that is that we're trying to affect the change of a society. This is our community. This is our society. And so therefore, dealing with the Aguna issue in Israel, where the get is the writ of divorce. So whether there is an Aguna, how to deal with that effectively, knowing that you have a partner in the rabbinate, in the rabbinical uh, courts, and actually together our advocates can actually put people in jail for not giving their spouses a Jewish divorce. And my point I'm trying to make is that in Israel, it's about creating a society, a just society, a spiritual society. That doesn't mean everyone's gonna be Shomer Shabbos, but it's about speaking to the values of what Judaism is about and trying to infuse that in everything that we do and having the courage to take on the tough issues and allowing Or Torah to be that place that tough issues can be dealt with through the prism of Torah values. So what is the toughest issue? If you had to rate them, what do you think is the, the toughest issue that's on your agenda today? Well, I think um, there are multiple tough issues, but the, there, there are different types of tough issues. One tough issue is how do we create the next leaders of the Jewish people? And, and we do that through our various education, post high school programs. I think that's a tough issue because we wanna make sure there are tolerant Torah enriched leaders. I think a second tough issue is issues of conversion in Israel, which is a very delicate issue as you and I are having this conversation. And how do you deal with the fact that you can have young people dressed very modestly who are not halakhically Jewish and stuff like that because of various forms of aliyah that have happened no different than what happened in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the beginning of the Second Temple period. Version issue in a halachically appropriate, sensitive way. That's another issue that any anyone who has schools, or and we have shlichim around the world. How do you deal with two hundred couples all over the world during during COVID and their challenges? So, if I, I can for a second, if I can, let me stop you on the conversion one because. You had invited me last week into a fascinating conversation with the Sarah that taught the Minister of Religion, Matan Kahana. Politically today, it's on the agenda. There is a bill that is being presented to Knesset to change the way that conversions are managed by the Rabbanut. Instead of having them centralized, to decentralize them and let every city Rav be able to do it. The Rabbanut, the the chief rabbis are, are strongly opposed to this. The politicians in power, the T people, from people are in favor of it. There's no question that what exists needs to be fixed. What is being proposed is, as anything being proposed, is still imperfect. And you're somewhat in the middle, and you have to work with both the Rabbanut, 
because you, when the Aguna issue, you work through the Rabbanut, and at the same time, you're working with the politicians who are opposing them. How do you manage being in the middle of something like that? Uh, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to let our heart and our, you know, and be committed to making sure that we're, our, our mandate is to be Mekadeh Shem Shemayim, to sanctify God. I think the chief rabbi is trying to do that. And I definitely believe that Matan Kahana is trying to do that every single day. And I actually don't believe that the, that both, I mean, I, I have no proof of what I'm about to say, but I actually don't believe that the chief rabbis are totally against what Matan Kahana is trying to do. I think that some of this is more of a political song and dance on both sides of the aisle. But ultimately, it's not creating a free-for-all in conversions. It's saying the city rabbis. That means any rabbi who's taking 11 tests. This is, if you think the Rabbanut regular tests are hard, which is the platinum standard. You know, my students are taking five tests. That's two or three more than you have to take for the YU Bechinas to get YU Smicha. They're taking five tests. In order to be a Ravi or a city rabbi, you have to take 11 tests. And these are serious personalities. And the idea is that they, this, the Rabbanut, the senior Rabbanut would still have uh, oversight uh, with the minister of religion. Um, there would be two people from the Rabbanut, two people from the minister of religion, and one person that they would all agree to. So I don't think it's like, I think it's basically creating a way in which we can deal with the conversion issue that desperately needs to be fixed with serious Tamide Chachamim who are the who are the significant leaders in their um, in their in their cities? Um, they're by no means um, lightweights. So I think that what I try to do is speak to the chief rabbi on issues that I think are clear, critically important. I'm not looking to make headlines. If I have an issue or a criticism, um, I'll say it privately. I'll WhatsApp him, and he'll respond. If I have something to celebrate, I will say that publicly. And with the minister of religion, I want to be helpful because I think that most of the Torah personalities that I respect, whether it's Rav Meidan or even Rabbi Druckman, uh, who says that he wants the chief rabbis to sign on, but he, but you know, I don't agree with everything Rabbi Druckman has done, but on this issue, I think he gets it. Um, I think that there is just an interest, a significant interest, and again, it's it's the meta narrative of making sure that we improve our Jewish society. And that means that people who've wanted to become part of our people should have the opportunity to do so and not just wait for the 26 Dayanim uh, in a very big country that has tens of thousands, if not more, who need to be converted, but rather to create like what Sohar did with weddings. And that is to allow there to be multiple portals of entry but still under a halachic uh, infrastructure that guarantees quality. And your role in all of this is because you have the yeshivot, because- We have also conversion centers oh. all over the world. Um, the conversion centers that we have in America, in Israel actually are under the Rabbanut. Um, but I think that it's because if we're in 50 Jewish community centers or matnasim all over Israel, and we're seeing thousands who are not converted, especially in places like Haifa, Russians, Ethiopians. 
So we're we're seeing them. We're we're their first. <coughs> excuse me. We're their first uh, religious connection. We want to make sure that they have the potential to be converted. Um, but yet, at this point in time, they don't feel comfortable with the process. If the process changed, you would find young and old, uh, many more, I think tens of thousands of more, maybe not everybody, but tens of thousands of more who would be interested in reevaluating being converted. And a different note, now that even though you are in Oleh Hadash, you are an Israeli, and you have come back to America, and you have all of those years of successful experiences in the rabbinate in America, what do you think, when you come back, and it's only been a few years, where do you think we're headed as a Jewish community, as a, uh, both the modern Orthodox community, the Haredi community, are we isolating ourselves, are we reaching out enough? Do we need to look at something long and hard beyond our own immediate community? That's a wonderful question. First of all, Rabbi Matanki, you have truly represented that. And again, I want to just state that the Chicago Cola, which I had some role in playing, I want to just be, you know, honest that if it wasn't for you and, uh, and Mr. Rothner, there would be no Chicago Cola. Uh, you guys made it happen. I, I, I have a good assist and I feel comfortable that I played a role in it, especially in the beginning, but it's because of you. And that really shows that Chicago Cola was a celebration of engaging a larger community. Um, listen, I think what we learned from what happened in Texas over Shabbos was for the most part, the entire Jewish community came together. And I think that's an, an important message that we need to be part of even though we have differences and even though we don't always agree with different streams of Judaism, but you've taught us, Rabbi Matanki, that you can disagree, but disagree agreeably, and you can be, you know, you can have unity without uniformity. I think we have to have that. What I'm not willing to be is, I'm not willing to be that guy who comes from Israel with my new passport saying, woe is to you if you don't make Aliyah for you or something silly like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not giving up on diaspora Jewry. I think diaspora Jewry is a rich Jewry from the perspective of rich in its heritage, rich in its menhagim, rich in its communities. Look at places like Chicago with your leadership and Rabbi Reese's leadership and uh, of Gedalia Schwartz, that's how of the past. There are significant, there are significant communities and there's a lot that Israel can learn from the diaspora communities. First of all, about community. Reshitz michat Latenu is the <laughs> line that we should think about. Community is important. And there's a lot to learn from North American communities. Do I think there are things that should be, you know, improved? Yeah, I th- I'm sure that there are things that should be improved. There's sometimes I get bothered a little bit when I see Americans making statements of what Israel should do, I, you know. I just wonder why people who don't uh, who don't have their children, you know, serving in the IDF and who aren't uh, don't have to worry about their students uh, on the front lines think that from the comfort of their homes they can make certain decisions. But that's normally just a few people. I think that we. Um, I, I, I don't, I think people should make Aliyah if they feel it's the right thing for them. But if they don't think it's the right thing for them, I think the, we should do whatever we can, both in the diaspora and in Israel, 
to make sure that diaspora communities are strong, the same way diaspora communities have done whatever they can to make sure Israeli communities are strong. And just our time is running out, just one last question. And I do want to jump back to your YU time. When you were vice president of university, there were so many things you did. If there was one thing beyond the YU Kolel in Chicago that you did that you feel most proud about, what would you say it is? YU Torah. You know, with Rabbi Levi Mastovsky and Rob Shore and a whole bunch of others, it, there's no one person who did it. But uh, Yeshiva University's Center for the Jewish Future started YU Torah. And uh, we had many sleepless nights and we all rested on Shabbos because people could say whatever they want and it couldn't be recorded and we didn't have to deal with the fallout, um, at least on Sunday, from the Shabbos recordings because there weren't any. But, it's, uh, but the bottom line is it has become really a epicenter of Torah. And again, you know, people like Rob Shore and others did so much for it. But the bottom line is it was, you know, when I had the privilege of being part of the Center for the Jewish Future with a lot of creative people. And we worked on this and we created the apps and we improved the website and we did a whole bunch of different things uh, to create really a platform of Torah, which has been imitated, which is wonderful, but still is a, a first rate uh, place where all types of Jews, and for that matter, not that I know this with any degree of certainty, I'm sure not just Jews, um, uh, visit to learn about uh, Torah. No, it's it's very true. I, I don't know a person in the um, in the observant or the learned community who doesn't refer to YU Torah. I've heard stories of people from Lakewood who not only use YU Torah, but also a more private website that you helped develop as well called Rabbanan. Right. Uh, other, other resources that rabbis often need. It's an amazing accomplishment. And it really is, Rabbi Brander, what your life has been. It has been a life. I've been blessed. I've been blessed, Brother Mitani. Except for I've this been. moment, it's been a life of light. <laughs> yes, yes, but I, the lights will come on again here. Yes, I hope your electricity returns fully. I thank you so very much for your Thank time. you for this opportunity. And again, the Chicago community is blessed to have people like you. The Jewish and, community is blessed to have you. And the Jewish world is blessed to have you as well, Rabbi. And thank you so very, very much. Have thank a wonderful you. evening. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Both of Bye-bye.